0: If you would, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 20. Got a slight correction to make on the sermon text. Uh, When the bulletin was put together, I thought we'd make it all the way to verse 16. And that did not happen. Uh, So we're just going to verse 6 today. Acts 20 verses 1 through 6. And we'll do 7 through Uh, 16 next week. I think most of you are probably familiar with the term flyover country. It's, It's an American phrase describing the vast amount of land between the East Coast and the West Coast, and especially the Northeast Coast where you have D.C., Baltimore, New York, Philadelphia, Boston, and then you have... Southern California on the Pacific Coast and also uh, San Francisco. And uh, I know you know this, but for the sake of redundancy, the name comes from getting on a plane and flying from one of those coasts to the other and flying over the interior of the nation. And all that you know... Of the middle of the country is what you're able to see from thirty thousand feet from your airplane window, right? And what we would argue—didn't Jason Aldean sang about this? But what we would agree with him is that those who spend all their time on the coasts and never visit flyover country—they're missing out on meeting some wonderful people and seeing some beautiful places. And I bring up flyover country because I wonder if it's the same for you when you come to certain parts of the scriptures. Are there portions of scripture that we fly over and have no intention of visiting? And I think undoubtedly we would all say yes. There are certain areas of the scriptures that we just try to get through as quickly as possible. Maybe our our Bible reading plan brings us to a portion and we just put our nose down and just power read through it or skim it. Well, I mention this again because I think you could argue the first six verses of Acts 20 could easily be flyover verses. I mean, you've got travel details and then a list of names of people that we don't know. And you compare that to what's coming later in the chapter. I mean, in the next section, what we'll get to in two weeks when when I'm back, you have a guy who falls asleep during one of Paul's sermons. Not only does he fall asleep, but he falls out a window and dies. And then later on, you have Paul's very touching address to the Ephesian elders. I mean, chapter 20 is a great chapter. And then here at the beginning, we've got these travel details and and a list of names. And I know there's a temptation to fly over it. That temptation is for the pastor as well. I think I could have easily summarized these six verses in a few sentences. It's true that Some passages of Scripture are are more difficult to preach than others, and you have some passages that just preach themselves. There's a reason the very first sermon I ever preached here at Trinity was Numbers 21 and the bronze serpent on the pole. Why? Well, some passages preach themselves, and this was not one of those. And yet, I remember what Paul said to Timothy. He said, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And I believe that statement applies to verses 1 through 6. There is teaching, there is correction, there is training in righteousness. And we'll miss it if we just fly over it. So here's your summary statement. Paul is wrapping up his ministry in Greece. He makes one final visit to the churches in the northern part of Greece, Macedonia, and then Corinth in the south, and he will spend the winter in Corinth. Up to this point, it's been all pioneer work. Go to a new place, a a new city, plant a new church. But what we see is Paul no longer visiting new cities but going back to those same churches, encouraging them and teaching them, some for the last time. This is his final tour of the mission field, and he's preparing them to continue without him. And we're going to see that in one moment, but first let's pray and ask for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, I do echo the words of your Son in John 17. Would you sanctify us in the truth? Your word is truth. We know that it does not return void. We ask that your Spirit would work through it for our good and for your glory. Amen. All right, our text, Acts 20, verses 1 through 6. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he'd gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Piraeus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and the Asians, Ticetus and uh, uh, Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi After the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. First thing we see here are the words, after the uproar ceased. You'll remember what caused this uproar. We uh, talked about it last week. You have these silversmiths, one in particular, and... Artisans who make their living uh, making and selling idols at the Temple of Artemis. Uh, The Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a big tourist attraction. There would be a lot of people coming in. And if you had something to hawk, you could make some money. Well, these vendors, these creators are upset Because people quit buying their idols. And we talked about why last week. They'd come to faith in Christ. Their eyes had been opened to see that gods made by human hands out of wood and silver are not gods. The Christians there in Ephesus began to spend their money like Christians. They quit subsidizing an industry that was offensive to the Lord. And these sellers and vendors got upset and began to riot. We're told this week the uproar ceased. And we remember it ceased because God willed it. In his providence, he uses a town clerk to quiet and disperse the crowd. I would remind you that our Lord can calm the wind and the waves and he can also quiet an angry crowd. Pray that we would remember that. And That he would give us the grace to trust him more. We then see that Paul is going to leave Ephesus. He spent two years there. But now he's leaving. He sends for the disciples, the believers who are there in Ephesus. He encourages them, says his farewells. And then he leaves for Macedonia. He's going to cross back. He's going to go from modern day Turkey across to modern day Greece. And again, we we read over this without marveling at what Paul is doing. Maybe this just stands out to a pastor. Paul is again walking away from a church plant, he's not being driven away. He's not being thrown out of town. He's leaving on his own volition. Now, I've heard church planters say just how difficult it is to leave a church. They played a part in planting. I mean, those churches can become your babies. And imagine leaving a very successful plant like the one in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus was so influential in their city that the personal spending of its people had the power to cause uproars and riots. I mean, I'm going to be honest and say, I mean, I think it would be very hard for a pastor to leave a church like that there'd be the temptation to say, look look what the Lord is doing here, look at the success, look at the impact we're making in this city. And yet Paul is able to walk away and let it go. He preached the whole counsel of God to them. He trained elders. He left them in very capable hands and he walked away. You know, recently I was listening to an interview uh, Kevin DeYoung sat down with Dr. Sinclair Ferguson and asked uh, Sinclair questions about his life and ministry. And this interview is recent. So it took place, I don't know, a month or so after Queen Elizabeth uh, passed away. And Sinclair Ferguson is, is of course, he's a, he's a Scot. And the Queen died at her residence in Scotland. And, and, and I, didn't, I didn't know this. Maybe you knew uh, Kevin asked him. He said, "Well, Sinclair, since the queen died in Scotland, did she die a Presbyterian?" And he said, "Well, yes, yes, she did. I, I, I did not know about this. Apparently, when the monarchy would go from England to Scotland, their uh, religious affiliation changes once they cross the borders. I, I found an article about this. I thought it was really interesting." It said, they board the royal train at King's Cross as the supreme governor of the Church of England, responsible for appointing bishops whom it teaches are successors of the apostles. But what happens when they cross the border into Scotland? By the time they arrive at Waverley, they belong to a church which has no bishops, And whose only supreme governor is Jesus? And I would say yes and amen. I thought that was interesting. They talked about that and then that of course led to Kevin asking Sinclair Ferguson about one time when he was asked to preach for the queen. And he was, Sinclair was very humble of course. He didn't bring it up. But he told the story. He preached at the, the small Presbyterian church that is right there outside of, I think it's Balmora. He preached there for her, and afterwards she personally invited him to join her at breakfast. And in her own very subtle, reserved way, complimented his sermon. And Here's, here's my point. There aren't many ministers of the gospel who are asked to preach before the queen. Those who are are very influential indeed. And the apostle Paul would speak before a king. We'll see this in several chapters. He'll stand before King Agrippa. But Paul, being human, there had to be some draw. Think of the influence I could have if I stayed in this pulpit in Ephesus, but he leaves. His highest treasure wasn't having influence. It wasn't being invited to preach for the monarchy. His treasure was Christ, and he trusted in him. And so he walks away, and we see that he heads to Macedonia. He crosses The Dardanelles Strait from Asia Minor to northern Greece. He's going back to all these places he's been before Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. Returning to all of them again. And he'll spend the summer there checking on these churches, encouraging them, assisting them with any problems or issues they might be having. He was doing something else as well. We we know that he was collecting funds. To give to the church in Jerusalem. There had been a famine in Jerusalem. And following the famine was poverty. And there were many Christians who were struggling. And news of that came to Paul and to these churches. And so he went around collecting funds from them. They wanted to give to this effort. They wanted to support their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And so Paul goes around... Collecting those funds from them. We see him speak of this in Romans 15. He says, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. That's one of the things that's going on at each stop. Well, then we see that he came to Greece. This might be a little confusing or a little redundant. Uh, by Greece, he is, Luke is referring to Corinth. Greece was another name for Achaia, the southern region of Greece. And, of course, the major city that Paul has been to there is Corinth. Paul's going to spend three months there. He will winter there. That's because the most dangerous time for sea travel was winter. He's going uh, to use this time well. Uh, During these three months, just just that little sentence, guess what happens during those three months? He's going to write his letter to the Romans. It really is amazing that he went back to Corinth in the first place. The Corinthians caused him a lot of grief. Back when he was in Ephesus... He heard troubling news out of Corinth. There were factions developing in the church. Some people were saying, oh, we're followers of Apollos. And others were saying, we're followers of Peter. We're followers of Paul. And then you had the the super spiritual ones that were saying, oh, well, we're followers of Christ. So there's division. And then there's notorious sexual immorality. There's a relationship between a, a man and his stepmother. There's lawsuits among the believers. They're suing each other. The rich are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper and ignoring the poor among them. There there are lots of issues. And so in Ephesus, Paul writes 1 Corinthians. Then after writing 1 Corinthians, he he leaves Ephesus briefly to pay them a visit. And we know uh, from 2 Corinthians, that things did not go well. He said the visit was painful. And then he returns and he writes another letter to them that we do not have. It, it was not preserved. But apparently it made a positive impact. Because as Paul is in Macedonia, going from the churches there, from one to another, he's brought news that the Corinthians have repented and they desire to be reconciled to him. And so after this, Paul writes 2 Corinthians while he's in Macedonia and then later goes and winters there. Now, in this, don't we see Paul's heart for these people? He loved them. He desired to be Reconciled to them. He doesn't excuse their sin. He doesn't resign himself to thinking, well, you know, this is just who they are. No, he appeals to them to be united, not divided. He, he says, Purge the evil person from among you. He wrote, Flee sexual immorality. And warned them, saying, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's making no provision for sin. But once they responded to his admonitions in repentance, he goes to them. Not holding any grudges, not nursing any wrongs. And in this, don't we see a reflection of the character of our Lord? One who takes sin deadly seriously. Deadly serious. And yet we see a picture of him, not only here in Paul, but also in the parable of the prodigal. Who, when he sees his son returning, he feels compassion and will run to him and embrace him and kiss him and clothe him and throw a feast and celebrate his repentance. I want you to hear this morning that the Lord Jesus loves his church. He loves you. And when you sincerely repent of your sin and desire to be reconciled to him, he will come to you. And he won't hold a grudge. You can read through all four Gospels and you'll see that it's always safe. To fall down before him and cry out, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me so that I might be reconciled to you. There's no safer place for us to be. Then in verse 3, we see a plot uncovered. Paul spends three months in Corinth. It's time to set sail from that port city to Syria, but a plot was discovered. We don't have the details, but we do know the Jews in Corinth were planning to murder Paul. And since the travel arrangements changed, I think we can assume pretty safely it involves something on board that ship. I mean, think about sea travel. You have close quarters, and if you have hostile passengers, Might be an attempt to throw someone overboard, maybe a dark night when you're in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Someone accidentally pushes Paul overboard. We don't know exactly, but Paul finds out about this plot. Plans change. He would be delayed, but he would just go north and sail out of another port. And again we see the Lord providentially guiding and protecting his servants, just like he'd done in Ephesus in that riot and just like he'd done countless times before. So we've got traveling details, but then we've got a list of his companions. And you know, if we're, if we're confessing portions of scripture that are flyover, then what about lists of names? How, how quickly we can skim over these lists. Saints, I'd like to remind you that these men listed here by Luke are your brothers in Christ. And you have more in common with them than you do with your unbelieving neighbor who lives down the street. These are the men who are representing their own local churches. They're going to accompany Paul to Jerusalem to deliver these funds. And you have Sopater, one of those noble Bereans who examined the scriptures daily. Then you have this duo from Thessalonica. You have Aristarchus, whose name means aristocrat. And then you have Secundus, whose name means second. Who are you if your name is second or number two? Well, he was probably the second, the number two servant of a wealthy household. You know, if you think about this in an in English context, you've got the butler who's number one and then number two would be the first footman. That's who this man was. If you go back and look at what we're told on Thessalonica, there's a lot of mention of Jason. Maybe Secundus was the number two servant in Jason's household. So you have aristocrat and first footman who show up from Thessalonica. And yet, for those who have put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, for all are one in Christ. Regardless of their social status, both of these men were debtors to mercy alone. Then came Gaius of Derby. You remember, there's not much said about Derby. If you go back to chapter 14, all that Luke says is after Paul was stoned at Lystra, the next day he and Barnabas went to Derby, and when they'd preached the gospel to the city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. That's all we get. They preached the gospel, they made many disciples, then they got out of there. Well, one of those disciples is here with Paul in Corinth and will accompany him to Jerusalem. Then you have Timothy. I don't think there's another mortal man that Paul loved more than Timothy. His friendship was a precious gift from God to Paul. We need to praise God for those friendships that he gives us. And the last two were uh, the Asians, uh, Tych- uh, Tychicus and uh, Trophimus. And by Asians, this is of course the Roman province of Asia. Uh, these would be Ephesians, most likely. These are products of the most recent work of the Spirit of God there in Ephesus. But then we have one more person. You know, if you look at the beginning of verse 6, you will see a plural pronoun. We sailed away from Philippi. What does that mean? It means that Luke has joined the company as well. He is the eighth man. So this is the team. This is the team that will travel with Paul back to Jerusalem. Their presence would be a comfort to him. They would have safety in numbers from bandits that they might meet on the road as they traveled overland. And also, financially speaking, this kept everything above board, didn't it? These men saw to it that the money their congregations gave for the church in Jerusalem made it to the church in Jerusalem so they'd hike up to Philippi, get on a boat, cross the Dardanelles. And then next week we'll see a very interesting worship service. You could say Paul's sermon bored one guy to death. I dearly hope that this sermon did not bore you to death. But I wanted to stop at this text because texts like this Remind us that God is in control. He has a plan. He's moving all of history towards the final end of that plan. And in the meantime, he will hold secure all his saints. And he will hold you secure. That list of names we just went through. I told you that you had much in common with them. And it's true. Hymn writer Augustus Toplady agreed. He, he wrote that, he, he's, he's talking about the believers in heaven and the believers that are on earth. And he says that the believers in heaven may be happier than we are. Right? And we can understand they're with the Lord, they're in glory. We are still pilgrims in this vale of tears. And he says, while they might be more happy than we are, they are not more secure. They are not more secure. Because we are all redeemed and covered in the blood of Jesus Christ and held by his power. I'd like to close with a couple stanzas from Top Lady's hymn. A Debtor to Mercy Alone. A debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy I sing, nor fear with thy righteousness own, my person and offering to bring. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood Hide all my transgressions from view. My name from the palms of his hands. Eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains. In marks of indelible grace. Yes I to the end shall endure. As sure as the earnest is given. More happy but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for texts like this. Texts that remind us of your plan and your working in history. Texts that remind us that you use individuals who are unknown to history, and yet you use them to play a part in your work of redemption, in the expanse of your church in the encouragement of the saints. And so, Father, I do ask this morning that you would use us as well and that we would be those who are able to work diligently knowing this truth that I just read that these faithful saints who have gone before us and are now with you, they might be happier than we are but they are not more secure. We are held in your hand and you tell us you will not lose one. Father, there are some good works we can do. There is some loving of our neighbors we can do. When that truth penetrates deep into our heart, I ask you that it would. In Jesus' name, amen.